my name is Aviva Silverman, and I will be having a conversation with Sean Ebony Coleman for the New York City Trans Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experience of trans-identifying people. It's July 25th, 2023, and this is being recorded on Zoom. Hi, Sean. Hey, how are you? Good. I was wondering if you wanted to introduce yourself. Yeah, I always hate introducing myself, but I'll take a stab at it. <laughs> yeah. I am Sean Ebony Coleman. I am the founder and executive director at Destination Tomorrow, the Bronx LGBTQ Center. I use he, him pronouns. Um, and I'm just happy to be a part of this project. Thank you. I wanted to bring us back to the beginning and ask you um, where you grew up. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, Bedside to be exact, um, with my grandma. My grandma raised me. Wow. And what was that like? Um, it was different. Uh, you know, it was myself and my younger brother, who's about, I believe he's seven years younger than me. So, and my grandmother was a senior, uh, senior citizen. So she's like 65 or so when, when, when she had us, meaning when we came to, to stay with us. And, um, it, it grew me up quickly, right? Especially once my younger brother came, because I, became in in a sense part of a, a care provider team for my younger brother. And then it also helped me um to be responsible because my grandma owned some brownstones. So I would help with collecting rent and I closely sharpening. So I think in some ways it it's made me the business person organizer uh uh that that I am. Um she told me how to get stuff done, right? So I didn't have much of a childhood, but it, I got a lot of useful tools. Mm. And what was best I like at that time? Uh, nothing like you see now. <laughs> Bed-Stuy was this, um, I grew up in a neighborhood where um, anybody on the block could reprimand you, right? And not only could they reprimand you, but they'd bring you home if you got into too much trouble. Um, so we, it's this true, it was truly a village, if you will. Um, but nothing like you see now, um, now is more diverse than it was then. Um, and I, you know, in large part it is due to gentrification. I know a lot of families that own their homes when, when I was growing up are no longer there and those homes are no longer in their family which is um, unfortunate. Um, I'm not even in the neighborhood anymore, but it was, it was, for me, it was special, right? Because you got a whole bunch of folks that are your family or an extension of your family, if you will. And I'm not sure if that exists now. Mm. And did you have any religious upbringing? My grandma, um, Baptist church, those kinds of things. When I was younger, she used to force us to go. And, you know, I don't know why they do that to children because it's always you, you. Who sits still for that long to listen to somebody talk? But you get in trouble when you didn't. And um, as I got older, I think I became more spiritual than religious. But at the but at the time, my grandma would would, would take us to church. And as, as she got older, and was unable to get around as much as she used to be able to. Then we weren't obligated to go because she wasn't going. Mm. And how would you describe your spirituality or your spiritual connection? Um, 
I think organized religion has turned me off, right? Because I think in the very beginning, it was it was my upbringing. So you you know you pray to God and Jesus the Son and all and all of those all of those things and it's rooted in you. And then you come up and the church becomes a place that told you you were right, if you will. Um, and it almost felt like you don't have a place there. The place that should have been home became so uncomfortable. And I think it was then that you had to lean into whatever your relationship is with your higher power. And I think I've been able to kind of really, really stay in tune with the fact that my religion is for me, um, defined through me, uh, and I understand what that connection is and what it means. I think I'm an incredibly, I don't think, I know I'm an incredibly spiritual person. So my meditation turns into a prayer, right? And those are things that help me through difficult times. I'm an incredibly, incredibly spiritual um, person, but I don't really do organized religion too much anymore. Mm-hmm. And what did you connect to as a child? Did you have any mentors or people that you got to like feel comfortable with or see you? Um, I had a teacher uh, in the in the sixth grade, Mr. Levi, um, and connected through through him because I believe he was the first person to see my leadership skills. Um, he would allow me to come to the front of the class and lead the class while he took a coffee break. Right, so it was really me just like going over whatever the assignment was or making sure if anybody needed help with the assignment. Um, I think that was my first the first person I looked up to because I think it was the first person outside of my immediate network, um, that family, if you will, in, in, in my neighborhood that actually saw some value in me that actually it was like, you're smart, you should invest in it or you're smart, read this book or like took the time to kind of um, help me when it, when it came to kind of like really believing in myself, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, around what time did you have some knowledge of of the idea of transness or of like queerness? <laughs> um, I believe I was eighteen, and it's myself and and one of my good friends who was still cool. Um, and we I caught myself coming out to him because I thought he was going to come out as well. So we're in my in my room, and I and I say to him, you know. Um, Because at that point, I thought it was just my sexual orientation. So it's like, you know, I want to tell you something. And he's like, what? And I'm like, I like girls. And he's like, you do? And and I did. it really did not go in the direction that I thought it was going to go in. He took that information. He was like, all right, I'm going home now. And he leaves. I'm like, oh, shit, he's going to tell everybody. Like, oh, my God. And And in that moment, that fear, like, just washed over me, like, Oh, why'd I do that? And he comes running back upstairs and he busts the door and he goes, I like boys. And I'm like, you do. <laughs> it was like, but then we had to sell out to find folks that were like us because in this neighborhood that's family, we didn't see anybody that felt or we didn't know anyone that felt the same way as us. So, you know, eventually we 
sort out the, the village. We wanted to go into Washington Square Park because they told us that's where the gays hang out. This is so this is a disturbing story. Because it's like someone told you to go there, you actually showed up. It's like, yep, we actually showed up <laughs> looking for other gays. And that's how I discovered the boring community. But uh it, it didn't tie into transness though, right? It was more about um my sexual orientation and folks like really grabbing on to the fact that I was assigned female at birth and like women. So I naturally had to be a lesbian. And that's, that's what you are when this is, when this is what happens. And I think for a minute, I thought that, but still wasn't comfortable in that identification. It, it Maybe a couple of years later when I actually met other people that you know were transitioning. I don't even remember if they called the transition at the time. They were taking shots, black market. Um, but I think it was in that in those moments, Borum gave me the opportunity to like really explore other other views of myself because I was still functioning under what other people were saying and was happy that they were saying something because I didn't know anything. So it made sense that they were saying something, but it still wasn't who I was. Mm. And can you name any of like the venues or the ball names for us, since we love to situate in history where, where and what things were, what were happening at the time? So at the time that so when I first, first came out, we were going to this place called Midtown 43. They used to do drag shows there. Um, uh, uh, it was Midtown 43. It was Showgirls because that's where all of the trans women used to hang out. Um, we always used to hang out on 42nd Street on the corner. So I don't, I mean, anybody that knows, knows. But we, we all used to hang out on 42nd Street on the corner. Um, and then some of the spaces that they actually had balls at were tracks on 19th Street. I think it was 19th and 11th or something like that. We used to go there to party and have balls. And then they had the octagon. We'd go over there. Um, Two Potato was another spot that we used to run up one and two. And they weren't having balls at the time, but just a place to hang out and connect. Um, those are some of the older spaces that, that, that Pandora's Box was one of the spaces where the lesbians used to hang out. Uh, yeah, those was, was a few. Those were nice memories, but it was a few a few spots that once we discovered um other community that they introduced us to. Mm. And did you ever perform in them? No, I've I've never done like a drag show itself. I've walked balls in tracks. Um, actually, the first ball I ever walked was for the house of La Beja, which was my first house. Peppa La Beja was my first mother. And um, my very very first ball was at the was it was at tracks. I can't remember the year. I feel like it was eighty nine. I started ballroom in eighty seven, eighty eight. I think my first ball was in eighty nine in tracks. Hmm. Do you have any favorite memories from that time? You know, I think <laughs> I think the first time you ever come out and people applaud you is the reason you keep coming back. Right. So you have um, a bunch of people. This is why I love ballroom so much. You have a bunch of people that arguably folks have discarded and and don't see value in. Then you you come in broken and you're in this space and then you get on stage and folks are actually applauding for you. For me, they were applauding because I look like a guy, right? My category was male illusionist. So you have to go out there and you have to be more masculine looking or appearing than anybody and any of the other um, 
people that were assigned female at birth and just to get up there and people are clapping for that. And it's like, wow, you've never gotten that before. And it just keeps you coming back, but it made me feel so, I was like, I, I think I found my folks, right? Because what else were you getting positive reinforcement about who you were or around who you were? And in that moment you were getting that and it just felt good. Wow. Were there any models for you of who you wanted to look like or like celebrities or in um, that era? No real celebrities that I wanted to look like. You know, I, and there's such a funny question because I think in that time when I first started, I didn't believe that I could look like I wanted to look, right? Because it's it's still so new. So um, as I mentioned earlier, the folks that I knew that were on uh, on HRT were getting it through the black market. So half of us didn't even know what we were taking back then. So I don't think and and in that young stage of my um understanding ballroom and understanding um gender identity as opposed to sexual orientation, I don't think I framed that that I would be able to look like this. It was just, this is who I am. I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't know what that means. I don't have a doctor. Like, it, it, there, there weren't spaces that could send you to, to a Callan Lord or a Destination Tomorrow or to, to, to get your HRT and have a doctor work with you around what your physical appearance could ultimately look like based on how you are taking your medicine and making sure you're taking it right and making sure you're doing your blood work. We didn't, do all, we didn't have all that. So I didn't have a, 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 a thought around what I wanted to look like or how I wanted to look like. I just knew I wanted to exist in that space where whatever it was I wanted to do, I could do. Mm-hmm. Um. And did you have any fear around um, like figuring it out or trying out things that people were giving you? Nah, I took some black market hormones too. And, and it's so funny because, you know, at my big age of 55, they'd be like, hey, I got a shot for you. Do you want to take it in your arm or your butt? I'd be like, if you don't get away from me with that, then it was like, I want to take it in my butt. Come on, let's do it real quick before anybody <laughs> And, and I don't know if it was because I was more excited to see what the change was going to look like or that I was taking a step in a direction that I knew I wanted to go. I'm not sure why I was such a daredevil then. I just know now my advice to young people is like, if there are appropriate ways to do it, you have to make sure you're managing your, your blood work and those kinds of things and that it should be done um, correctly. But I think that says a lot. Even in, in that, in, in, during that time, like when trans women they weren't getting cosmetic surgeries like that. They were going to pumping parties. Pumping parties were a, a, a regular thing. Like we was dropping our friends off and then picking them up and they got bandages and crazy glue and all kinds of stuff on them. And they were just happy that the body was shaping in the ways in which they wanted it to. So I think we did a lot of regular stuff back then to kind of uh, accomplish whatever look we were going for. And I didn't really have one. I just wanted to, you know, I, I just wanted to be able to exist and say that this is who I am. Wow. Um, how was trans masculinity discussed at that time? It wasn't. So for a long time, this was still something that was just trans. And it's so ironic that that's still in some ways the case, right? When you think, when you think of trans people overall, the first frame of reference for many people are trans women. When you mention trans men, they'd be like, trans men? You mean men that's turning into, like, no. 
this is what I mean by transmission. So it's just still so ironic that all of these years later, we're still having to have a separate discussion around the, the needs of trans masculine folks and the erasure of, of trans masculine folks. But there wasn't a discussion like that. It was, you know, we were, back then they called us, um, where they had some derogatory names, but we were studs that, you know, that stud really looks good because he got all, he got facial hair. How he get facial? Like it was it was that kind of discussion. It wasn't like, oh, that's a trans man. We didn't we didn't name it back then. Right. Can you speak more towards the erasure of trans masculinity? Then or now? Um, I guess now, I, or how you relate to it through time. You know, I think. Um, relative to time, no one ever got an opportunity to shine a light on it, I don't think. I know here in New York, I didn't have many examples of what it meant to be a trans man. And I think, because for, for a while, it was like, you know, I'm going to transition, but I'm not telling anybody because it's nobody's business, you know, living stealth. And I, I think um, after a while of doing this work, it became incredibly important to give face to what a Black trans man looks like so that we can um have discussions and i'm not sure why the erasure happens right um part of it feels like for a long time we had to protect trans women because when you look at it overall um violence happens to trans men but it overwhelmingly happens to trans women right so you want to prioritize or prop up the one that is most at risk and I think the belief has always been that trans women are more uh, are more at risk. I think um, for a lot of people, um, trans masculine folks, you, you know, you have the luxury, and this is their belief, that we have the luxury of transitioning into a better class or a better status, if you will, right? Because now I get all of the privileges that come with being um, seen as male, Um and I think in some ways that is true, but I think overwhelmingly folks forget that once people truly understand or see you as being transmasculine, you never shake that whole, oh, but you were born this, oh, but you are that. Biologically, you're still, right? So um, you may look at me and say, oh, that's a man, that's a man, and, 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 and I get certain privileges that come with it, but under meet that layer you still have that apprehension because if someone finds out how are you treating me now and I don't think that's discussed either so I think the erasure comes in because people really believe that we are privileged in some ways and that we don't have the same like um, I, I had a, a fight just trying to get a masculine trans masculine folks included in HIV prevention and we still haven't completely accomplished it but when I first started we were being met with oh they don't need it they have sex with women and you're like you don't know who they have sex with and 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 even if that were the case, like <laughs> sex is fluid. So ninety nine percent of the time they may have sex with women. It may be that one percentage. Do we still not want to make sure that they're educated around how they keep themselves safe? And it was just real silly discussions around the needs of trans masculine folks. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not sure why the erasure happens. I, I know it still exists, and I'm I'm hopeful that in being part of like these kinds of discussions and being visible, that you know you can shake it at some point, or at the very least, we begin to hear more voice, more trans masculine voices. Definitely. 
Definitely. Um, I'm just so curious, what else was it like to be in New York in the 80s during all the different like scenes and epidemics? I'm just like, I... It was it was crazy, right? Because you have the HIV epidemic, you have um um the crack epidemic, right? We're still coming from spaces of poverty, right? And really not understanding um how all of that plays in plays into our lives in those moments. Um, but then it's still being this this space that I am having an amazing time because I am able to now fully be myself. Right. So on the backdrop of all of this poverty and all of these other things happening, because we're still in bed side. <laughs> so under the backdrop of all of that dysfunction, if you will, and, and, and poverty, it was something so creative and something so beautiful that I was able to be a part of. So in some ways it served as a distraction, but then full circle, it it allowed me to I think in a bird's eye view of how uh, black and brown bodies were treated, both through um, the HIV epidemic and the AIDS and the, the crack epidemic, I think it, um, the response from those folks that were supposed to care about community were the same. And it's like, so you okay? Let me get it right. You care about certain members of the community, not this one, and not just because they identify as queer, but there's a larger thing at, at, at play here, right? Because why why was crack able to run so rampant in, in certain communities and in other communities, you just had to just say no to drugs and a zero tolerance. Like how did that exist in the sense? So uh, overall the eighties were, were crazy. It was like, I had a blast and it helped shape the, the man that I became, especially when it came to advocacy work. Wow. What forms of employment did you have during then? I hustle. I hustle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, and that came about, it, and you know, it was also crazy. So going backwards, just taking a step back. Okay. As I said, my grandma um, raised me. My, my grandma got sick and, I, uh, and, and at some point um, my aunt came and removed my grandmother from, from the family home and took her to her home. And in doing so, she took all of the income out of the house. So you let me stay. But you ain't give me a way to take care of myself, nor is there anybody else taking care of me. And we started, you know, started doing whatever I had to had to do to survive. And this, and, and it's so funny because again, the stories are, are parallel to our trans sisters. Um, we all participated in some kind of underground economy, right? They used sex work, and show world was the space, and and we we used, you know, I had a friend who worked at the post office, and she used to get. Um, we just steal bags of mail and the mail would have these credit cards in it. And it's not like now, you know, you take the damn card and go use it right then. There was no call to activate and give us the last four digits of your soul. There was none of that. You got your card in the mail, go shop. And we did. <laughs> and and for, for a very long time, I hustled. Um, yeah, for a very long time, I hustled. Uh, from state to state, I eventually moved out of New York and um, went to Baltimore for uh, for t uh, uh, about a year, maybe a year and a half. I lived there and continued to go state to state, just hustling with my friends. Wow. Um, do you have any um, experience with education? Did you go to um, high school or yeah? High high school got skipped, so I got skipped from the um, seventh to the ninth grade. 
started an advanced advanced education in in high school. Um, did a few years in college, and then you know, the streets were calling. I didn't have any real money, no real. Um, I don't want to say no real guidance, but um, my mom was in and out of jail. My grandmother is not there. My aunt clearly showed where her priority was. So it was just like, well, what am I doing this for? I'm not even going to be able to continue to take care of myself. And, and eventually the streets won. And I, I did more in the streets than I did in school. Mm. And how did um, your mother being in jail shape you? You know, I don't want to say it felt normal because when my mom had me, she was only 15. So it wasn't like I had an adult parent anyway. Right. And I think in some ways my grandmother um, sheltered her a lot. So that it wasn't a lot of growing up required of her. So it was more like, um, I think the death of my, my grandma impacted me more than my mom being in jail. My mom being in jail at some point, they, I got to the point that no one else was going to visit her. So I'd go visit her every month. I would take her monthly packages and make sure that she, you know. So it, it just became like a job or something to do. It wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where did you go after Baltimore? Um, Came back to New York. I was wondering where the cops so I came back to New York and then I went to Atlanta for a little while and came back to New York. New York has always been ground zero. Um, I then got in trouble and did some time in jail and then came back to New York and then got into some more trouble and did some more time in jail and then got my shit together. It was like, I'm not going back there anymore. This is ridiculous. Um, but it, it, it came about a little differently when I like finally decided that I wasn't... Um, gonna behave gonna do that anymore but so have lived in both Baltimore and Atlanta for um short periods of time but I've always come back to New York Mm. and what other social scenes were you a part of just uh, technically just the Baltimore scene yeah Yeah. and do you still have anyone you're in touch with from that era all my friends are from that. <laughs> got you, got you. Just, just checking in, just checking yeah, in. All my friends are from the era. that era. You know, I think that's the best thing about Warroom too. I have friends that from over thirty years and 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 more, and it was just us coming up together and doing dumb shit and figuring it out, and then you know, and now talking to kids about doing dumb shit. <laughs> but yeah, I think I would say eighty percent of my friends are from Warroom from that era. Wow. Amazing. Um, and then how did you, were, was there any other um, stage of life between you, that era, and then you establishing Destination Tomorrow or how did that come to be? Yeah. So the last bid I did was um, a three-year bid in the feds, 36 months I did alone. Um. And I think that, so, okay, so take another step back. Yeah. Um, there was a judge, old, older white guy, and, you know, we had trial and, and my dumb ass went to trial. I don't know what I was thinking. I've seen too many movies, I guess. But, um, and he's in the process of sentencing me and he comes off the bench and he says, you know, I really feel like 
the system has done you a disservice. And I hope you don't see this as the ending, but rather the beginning, because you're way too intelligent to be, you know, doing things like this, making these kinds of mistakes. Uh, something to that. I don't know if you called it a mistake or what he called it, but he said I was way too intelligent to be put up in that stuff. And all I heard was way too intelligent. Like, you know, this white guy is tell is this white guy who's in a position of power is is calling me intelligent. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I have to figure it out. And I had 36 months to figure it out. And luckily, I say luckily because I was going to jail. But luckily I was going to jail in the feds. And there was adult education and all of these things that you could um do to pass your time. And I did everything to just try to business classes, computer classes, writing classes, whatever it was that I could take, I took to um make sure that I at least had some uh, usable skills when I came home. Wow. Um, I then came home and started working in the Gap. And, and as a like, 21-year-old kid telling me what to do, and that frustrated the hell out of me. Was like, you're not folding the shirts right. And you're like, you're going to get the fuck away from me with these shirts. So I knew I had to do something else. And um, a, a good friend of mine, um, y'all call her Dominique Jackson, um, but to me that was Tyra Alor because I knew her from the ballroom scene. And y'all know her from Pose, and I knew her from the ballroom scene. But at that time, she was working at a place called Bronx Community Pride Center. And she said, I want you to come talk to Lisa Winters. Lisa is putting together a trans program and she wants me to do it, but I want you to do it with me. What are you doing, Coleman? I was like, I mean, I just came from jail. I'm working in the gap. And she's like, well, come on, come on, let's go meet Lisa. And I was like, I think I'm going to miss my shift and miss the shift and all of that stuff. But went up and had a discussion with Lisa and um, started doing work in the Bronx, organizing trans people who, who at the time wasn't coming out like that. <laughs> This was like 2000, so there wasn't like too many safe spaces for trans people to go. And um, we started to establish that and to organize it. Um, how did you solicit or how did you make it visible what you were doing? Um, tapping into our networks, letting folks know through the network that we had, that we had this space that if they wanted to come hang out, they could. And um, we could even convince her to buy us food if you came uptown and that kind of stuff. And it was just a, a comfortable place. You come, you get some pizza, you can relax. It was nothing. It, there, there was no no schedule, if you will, right? If you just were tired and needed to relax, you could. If you wanted to come print something out for your next flyer, for your ball, you could. Whatever it was, we just made it a, a really, really safe space. And then found out through them, well, I, I haven't seen a doctor in this long. It's like, you haven't seen a doctor? Let me talk to Lisa about this and see what we can figure out. And then now connecting them to service. So all of it became so organic about how we were going to provide service, which is why we do it this way at Destination Tomorrow. The, the programs are all guided through community buy-in or community input, right? I'm like a firm believer that if the community doesn't want it, we shouldn't be doing it and we should be asking them first what it is that they want and need. And I got that from when we were, um, you know, in the very beginning when Lisa was allowing us to kind of try to frame out what it would look like. Wow. And so could you run me through uh, like what Destination Tomorrow provides? Everything. <laughs> 
Um, so we started as a direct service organization, right? Because I wanted to give folks the tools that they needed to be successful. It was one thing to bring people in with pizza and soda and, and transportation cards, but we knew that that's not sustainable for folks. So we wanted to make sure that we were given um, um, these soft skills, if you will. So at the very least, if you needed uh, entry-level employment or whatever it was you needed, you'd be able to, to, to get it here. So we do... GED, job readiness, financial literacy, life skills, professional development. It started there and then it grew. Um, we started doing HIV testing because we had a whole bunch of folks from Ballroom and from our community that didn't trust some of the providers um, and didn't feel safe because they just see us as a number. They don't really like us and I don't want to go there anymore, like that kind of stuff. So we started doing HIV testing. Um, we put together a food pantry, we put together a clothing pantry because uh, a, a lot of um, folks we were trying to get them jobs, but they didn't have the proper clothing to wear. Um, and now we've branched into doing housing because uh, that was one that is one of the biggest needs within our community. So we do emergency housing, we do, and now we're shifting into doing shelters. Uh, we're also a grant maker, and um, we've partnered with Gilead Science. This is our third year that Gilead gives us a million dollars and then nationally we look for trans and gender non-conforming non-binary organizations to um, reallocate those funds to. So you can apply for up to $50,000 if you're doing a collaborative effort or 30,000 if it's just your solo organization. And and the goal with that is to you know create sustainable um, TG and C and B organizations on the national lens. Wow. And how did you support yourself in the beginnings of all that? How did it, how did it get up, you know, get running? So um, initially, I have a daughter, my daughter's 35 years old, and my daughter worked for NYPD. She was, uh, um, which is so ironic, right? Me and my hustling ass and my daughter worked for NYPD, but that's another story. Um, so I, I stayed, I lived in her house for about a year on her recliner, um, and she kind of, uh, and prior to her, I was dating someone and was staying with them and their mom. So as we were trying to grow the organization, I went from Miss Bailey's house, who's my ex, my ex's mother. I went from her house to once my daughter got situated, going in and staying with my daughter. Um, and they kind of, and then ultimately my wife and I were staying with her grandmother. So if you'll pay attention, there are various stages, which means it took a long time to get to this point. And it, it's so frustrating because people see where it's at now and it's like, oh, he got this and he got that. And it's like, this took years for us to get the operating budget that we had. I've I slept on so many people's sofa and couch or air mattress or recliner. It wasn't funny, but those were the three spaces I owe them everything. Miss Bailey, I love her to death, and we're still in communication, even though I don't talk to her daughter no more. Um, my daughter and and my and my and my wife. Wow. Totally. Um what have been some of the biggest challenges you faced in, in creating an organization like this? Um <laughs> I think probably the biggest is folks taking a series. You know, I had so many people tell tell me that it wouldn't work, right? Even though I watched other people that are not from the community do way less than what we were proposing, I had pe people act like this couldn't work. And I believe 
that um they felt that way because it was in the Bronx. So we're in an outer borough. So there weren't a lot of resources coming to the Bronx anyway. It was a black trans man who wanted to do it, who also happened to be formerly homeless and um, 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 impacted by the criminal justice system in more ways than one. And, and I think um, for all of those reasons, they wrote it off. Uh, and I think for all of those reasons, I went even harder when I show up to meetings or create programs and services because I'm telling you through lived experiences what worked. So one would assume that um, that in and of itself would have made me the subject matter expert, but I also knew how to make to make these connections, right? Like there are so many um, black trans organizations or brown trans organizations that don't survive because they don't understand how to go beyond doing advocacy work, right? I like to consider myself an advocate, but I also consider myself a businessman. And I think um, coming into it, I, I, I had to see it as a business to understand what would be necessary to make it grow. Um, and I don't think they thought I had the capacity or the ability to do that. And I think I've proven them wrong. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. What's been an important source of support for you over the years? Family. Um, family. My, my daughter. Um, my wife. Um, uh, um, my ballroom community. Um, yeah. Mm. Family has been probably the most important and you know that's so ironic because now I work so much I don't even get a chance to spend time with any of the things that make me happy so <laughs> because I, I just feel like this is also purposeful and I and I need to um I need to to seize the moments as they come and 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 I realize this is a moment in time so I don't want to waste any of it I want to make sure that whatever I'm supposed to be getting for my community, I'm actually accomplishing it. Wow. How do you see yourself and your organization in relationship to like broader trans politics and trans visibility, especially now? I think my organization is going to become the um, a bridge to, to folks understanding what's happening politically, right? Um, when I when I mentioned before about advocacy and um, being a businessman, I think the, that the next arm or next level of it is connecting it all to um, um, government resources and and building relationships so that you can um, work with them on policy and legislation that that is more friendly, if you will, towards the community. And I think. No, I know the next stage for Destination Tomorrow is being more uh, involved in that. I'll give you an example. I just came back from uh, Arkansas. Um, one of our one of our grantees had an event uh, over the over the weekend, and we flew out to go support it or whatever. And it was trans guys from all over. And there's one trans guy from Iowa, and he was like, "I need I need help organizing so bad." I'm like, "Iowa, Iowa caucus. Wait a minute. How amazing would that be?" If the next time we meet, we're meeting at the same time that they're meeting and we take our party to their party and we go and march it, like those kinds of things, I think will be instrumental in doing and making sure that they understand why I, I want a bunch of black and brown trans bodies to be in Iowa at the same time that the elections are happening so that they understand the damage or that they're like, these are real people 
that we, on paper, you may just be looking at it like, oh, they don't need this. We are coming here to tell you that we are. And I want you to tell me in my face that I don't deserve or need the same kind of health care that you do. So I just think that's a powerful movement. And, and, and I think that Destination Tomorrow will be instrumental in making sure those things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, are there any questions that you wish you were asked more when you when you're asked to talk about either you or your organization? Um, I want folks to ask about what joy looks like for this community, right? Because I, I would love to hear about that. Because <laughs> because you you hear so much some the news that you hear about how folks are organizing against trans people. Yeah. It almost feels like every community is out to get you, uh, or 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 against you. Uh, but we have so many moments that we celebrate together, right? That moment in Arkansas was not about black boy joy and it was black trans boy joy. We got a chance to just hang out, where like everybody took their advocate hat off or ED hat or whoever you were when you got there. We all just took that off and like really, really sat down and got an opportunity to get to know each other and celebrate each other and, and celebrate the work that we're doing and celebrate the spaces that we're in now and all of those things. Because many of us didn't think we'd make it this far and just celebrate the fact that we made it this far. And I, I want to see more of that. I um I love that so much. Is there um a certain kind of message you would like to leave on this record? I think the record I for whoever's listening, that's crazy. Um that at the end, um none of us have survived, no one will survive if we're not working together, right? Um, and I'm watching this thing happening online with black cis women against black trans women and then Black trans um, drag queens are injecting themselves into the discussion, and it's just all going left. And it's disheartening because when you look at it, we're like at a pivotal point in, in as far as democracy, period, is concerned. And that's not just them trying to um, erase trans people. They're trying to erase anybody that's not white, cis, and male. Yet they've done an amazing job in distracting from what they're trying to do and dividing us. So my message is I'm hopeful that as we begin to pivot or switch gears around what's necessary, that we recognize that we are all necessary to get us to the next point, the next level in life. If not, we're, like we don't have to worry about anybody, anything because all of us will be others. All, all, all of us will go without the, the basic needs and have other people telling us who and what we can be and do and say and live and all of those things. So I'm, I'm hopeful that whoever is listening to this will be able to say, oh, well, we figured it out. We got it. We're all working together now. And y'all helped in, in, in blazing a path towards doing that, like figuring out what it looks like for black trans women and, and, and black cis women to work together or figuring out how to begin um, a discussion between the LGBTQ community and, the, and those communities that are fighting for reproductive rights and how it impacts LGBT folks. Like I am hopeful that by the time they someone listens to this, they'll be like, oh, we figured it out, but thank you because y'all laid the groundwork. Mm. Well, we appreciate you. We appreciate your work so much. Um, and I really love talking to you. And if there's anything else you want to add, you can let me know. But I'm uh, sure there's like volumes, <laughs> <laughs> volumes. 
<laughs> you know, I think we did good. I think I think you touched. Yeah. Thank you for your questions. Your questions were great. 